This episode is brought to you by Podbean. Podbean is an easy and powerful way to start podcasting. We give you all of the tools you need for a successful podcast, such as unlimited podcast hosting, podcast distribution, monetization options for podcasts of any size, and live stream podcasting capabilities. Sign up today at www.podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. episode six of a murderous affair this episode is probably going to be a longer one so let's buckle up shall we so the inspiration behind this episode comes from season two of mind hunters now i don't know if any of you watched that show but oh my god it is amazing it basically takes the story of how the fbi started its criminal profiling unit and the psychology behind it the show is loosely based around the book Mindhunter Inside the FBI's Elite Serial Crime Unit, written by Johnny Douglas and Mark Olshaker. The main characters are actually based off the people who played incredibly important roles in the work of psychological profiling. To get all this insight, there were interviews conducted with convicted murderers who had killed in sequence, which is where the term serial killer was coined. But the interviews were conducted with people like David Berkowitz, Richard Speck, and Charles Manson. So it's actually in the second season, no spoilers because it's in the trailer. The main detectives meet Charles Manson in prison to interview him about his influence on his so-called family. And after watching that episode, I jumped right onto Wikipedia and started researching all about the Manson family again. I feel like every true crime fan goes through the Manson family obsession experience, so watching that episode kind of reactivated my interest in the case, and this leads to the murderess I wanted to talk about today, Susan Atkins. Susan Atkins was born the middle child in Northern California. She grew up middle class and was described as a church-going and quiet girl who was in choir. When she was 15, her mother was diagnosed with cancer, and two weeks before she died, Atkins organized her choir group to sing Christmas carols under her mother's bedroom window. After her mother's death, Atkins was moved to Los Banos, California. Her father started working on the San Luis Dam construction project, and she and her siblings were left alone to fend for themselves. Susan got a job her junior year of high school to help support her family, and she and her siblings ended up being moved from family member to family member. So what happened was she ended up running away from home and dropping out of high school. Eventually, she ended up in Oregon working as a topless dancer. She was part of a few robberies and was living in a house with drug dealers when she met Manson in 1967. He was playing his guitar in a house party and sang The Shadow of Your Smile. Okay, so I don't know that song, 
but it must have had some sort of impact on Atkins and Manson because he invited her to join himself and a few other women that summer and travel in a converted school bus painted all black. Now, in an interview later on, Atkins said that she thought Manson was actually Jesus. Right. She's quoted as saying his voice, his manner just more or less hypnotized me mesmerized me. Now when Atkins joined Manson on this summer road trip in a converted schoolie, it was at this time that Manson renamed her to Sadie Mae Glutz. Now it's quoted as saying that he did this to take away some of her confidence and teach her humility and basically to quote-unquote kill her ego, which, you know, who wouldn't respect that in a person? At some point, Manson and his growing number of followers ended up at Spawn Ranch. The agreement to stay on the ranch was that in return for a place to live, the so-called family would help take care of the property and keep Spawn company. Basically, Spawn was this elderly man who was partially blind and um, didn't have the best mobility, and he was lonely. When this group of you know, young adults came by and asked if they could stay on his ranch. He said that they could and offered to keep him company. So this part is actually funny. I didn't know this until I started researching more. But what's funny is the Manson family wasn't even the first cult to live on the land known as Spawn Ranch. In the 1940s to the late 1950s, there was a man who called himself Krishna Venta who built what he called a monastery on that property. Now, supposedly, Manson actually spent time with this group, which was called the Fountain of the World. In 1958, some ex-members of the cult ended up actually blowing up the monastery and killing Venta and some of the other cult members in the area. What are the odds that two murderous cults would find themselves on the same land acreage? I feel like this place just has to be haunted now, or there's something going on, because what are the odds of that happening? Anyway... Moving on, when it came to living on the ranch, Atkins said that, quote, we were just like wood nymphs and wood creatures. We would run through the woods with flowers in our hair and Charlie would have a small flute. Now, I don't think that was actually an experience they had, but it is known that at Spawn Ranch, there were no clocks, no newspapers, and a constant supply of drugs that Manson fed everyone on. So maybe that's where the vision of running through the woods with flowers in their hair and Manson guiding them with a flute came from. On October 7th, 1968, now Atkins gave birth to a son who Manson named, um, I don't even know how to pronounce this, Zizozi Zadfrak Glutz. Around this time is when she was convicted of the murders and no one in her family wanted responsibility for this child, which is just so sad because obviously this child had absolutely nothing to do with Atkins and her life choices. There's a happy ending to this story. When she was incarcerated in 1969, her son was adopted and renamed. So now we get into the summer of 1969. Manson, Atkins, and the others at Spawn Ranch were getting a lot of attention from the police. They were being suspected of committing auto thefts and they were starting to get suspicious of the high number of teenage runaways that were joining the family. Now, in an attempt to raise money to move away from the desert, Manson encouraged drug dealing. Now, and it was during one of these drug dealing fundraisers that Manson and Tex Watson actually killed a man named Bernard Lotsapapa Crow. Um, and it was kind of this event that led to the events of the murders. So after the death of Bernard Crow, Manson sent Atkins, Bobby Busilio, and Mary Brunner to the home of Gary Hinman. When she was on trial, Atkins said that she didn't know that there was going to be a crime that took place. But apparently in a book in 1977, 
She wrote that she went into Hinman's home to get money and knew it was possible that they were going to kill him. Basically, Gary Hinman had supposedly inherited a lot of money and Bobby Busoli beat him. After getting beaten, Hinman still said that he didn't inherit any money. This is when Manson showed up in person and swung at his head with a sword, you know, severely injuring him. Manson then told Atkins and Brunner to stay behind and make sure that Hinman didn't die. Two days later, Manson called Hinman and he signed over the registrations to his cars, to Bobby Basole. And then it was at this time that Busole stabbed him twice. Busole left a bloody handprint on the wall along with some kind of revolutionary words placed there in hopes of implicating the Black Panthers. And then he was arrested on August 7th when he was found asleep in one of Hinman's cars. And he was still wearing the blood-stained clothing and had the murder weapon hidden in the trunk of the car. So this is all snowballing up to the events of August 8th, 1969. Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel gathered in front of Spawn's rim, and Manson told them to go with Charles Tex Watson and do as they were told. Atkins said that while she was in the car, Watson told the group that they were going to a home to get money from the people who lived there and to kill them. This was the Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski murders. So five people were murdered at the Benedict Canyon home. Sharon Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant, Tate's unborn son, Stephen Parent, Jay Severing, Wojcik Frykowski, and Abigail Folger. Now, according to Atkins' testimony, this is what happened all that night. She was instructed to kill Frykowski and managed to tie his hands, but froze up before she was able to kill him. He got loose and the two of them began to fight. And that was when Atkins stabbed him in what she called self-defense. Atkins also held down Sharon Tate and she recalls that Tate pled for her life and the life of her unborn baby. It was at this point that Atkins said, woman, I have no mercy for you, and held Sharon Tate down while Watson stabbed Tate in the chest. In her trial testimony in 1971, Atkins testified that she killed Sharon Tate herself, but then recanted that story. When they left the house, Watson told Atkins to go back inside, and according to her, he wanted her to write something that would, quote, shock the world. So using a towel dipped in Tate's blood, Atkins wrote the word pig on the wall. Atkins was also present at the LaBianca murders. However, she did not participate in the murders um, and stayed in the car during these killings. Grocery store owner Lino LaBianca and his wife Rosemary were murdered by Manson and Watson. At the trial, prosecution said that Manson's desire to start Helter Skelter, an apocalyptic race war, was actually the motive for these crimes. In 1977, in her autobiography, Atkins said that the Tate Lobby murders were carried out to convince authorities that Boussole was the wrong suspect in the Hinman case. On August 16, 1969, the police actually raided Spawn's ranch in connection with the auto thefts, but these charges were dropped and everyone was released. They weren't at this time suspected of the murders that had been committed, but authorities were still suspicious of them and raided the location that they moved to in October. They then arrested the group again on auto theft charges, and it was there that one of the members of the group said that Atkins was involved in the Hinman murder, and she was charged with that crime. Now, while she was in jail, Atkins began confessing to two other other criminals, Virginia Graham and Veronica Ronnie Howard, that she had participated in the Tate-LaBianca murders. These two women reported her statements to the authorities, and their statements, combined with information from other sources, 
led to the arrests of Atkins and the others involved in the Tate-LaBianca murders. At this time, Atkins agreed to testify for the prosecution in exchange for dropping the death penalty. Um, and that's when she told the grand jury what happened on the nights of August 8th and 9th. When asked if she was willing to testify knowing that she was not being given immunity, she quote-unquote said, I understand this and my life doesn't mean that much to me. I just want to see what is taken care of. So Atkins actually told the grand jury that she stabbed Krakowski and held Tate down while Watson stabbed her. Her explanation for the quote, woman, I have no mercy for you, was trying to convince herself and not actually address to Tate because she was, quote, told before we even got there that no matter what they beg, don't give them any leeway. And then it was at this time that she discontinued her cooperation with the prosecution and invalidated her grand jury testimony. Throughout the trial, Atkins and her co-defendants attempted to disrupt proceedings and were noted for their absolute lack of remorse for their victims and lack of concern for their own fate. They sang Manson's songs while being led to the courtroom and when Manson showed up car after having carved an X into his forehead, they did the same. When she did testify, she frequently contradicted herself and known facts. During the sentencing phase of the trial, Atkins testified that she stabbed Tate because she was, quote, sick of listening to her pleading and begging, begging and pleading. On March 29, 1971, she and the other defendants were sentenced to death, and she was transferred to California's new woman's death row in April of 1971. Now, while she was in prison, she actually married twice. Her first marriage was to Donald Lee Leisure in September of 1981. And weird fact, um, she was his 35th wife, but soon the two divorced after he wanted to marry someone else again. Um, in 1987, she married James W. Whitehouse, who was a graduate of Harvard Law School, who represented her at her 2000 and 2005 parole hearings. In 2008, it was revealed that Atkins had been hospitalized for more than a month with terminal brain cancer, and one leg had been amputated. The 11 members of the California P Board of Parole Hearings ultimately declined Atkins' request for compassionate release. Susan Atkins died on September 24, 2009 at the Central California Women's Facility. Her cause of death was listed as natural causes. Her minimum eligible parole date was October 6, 1976. Between 1976 and 2009, she was denied parole a total of 13 times. Until her death in 2009, she was California's longest serving female inmate. And that is the crazy story of Susan Atkins and her involvement in the LaBianca Tate murders. Like I said, if you guys have not seen Mindhunter, you definitely should because it is an amazing show. All the actors and actresses do a fantastic job, especially those who have to inhibit the serial killer's mindset and really portray what they were like on screen. I think it'd be really interesting in the future if they did interview some of the female suspects that John Douglas himself interviewed. So maybe we'll get to see that a little bit in the third season. That is the murderous of the day. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and I would love to know what you think. Feel free to reach me at Frumius Reads on basically all social media outlets. And please let me know what you thought of this episode and if you have any suggestions in the future for other murderesses. Thank you so much for listening and I will talk to you guys next week. Goodbye!
This episode is brought to you by Podbean Live. Podbean Livestream is a unique platform for turning your podcast production into a live show. It's open to any podcaster on any hosting site. Easily invite multiple co-hosts and guests to join your live stream. Earn money from live show ticket sales and get listener rewards and engage your audience in new and exciting ways. Ready to get started? Sign up today at www.podbean.com slash live. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash live. 